welcome to episode 118 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Tabitha Clark, Kate Seaman, Patty Adkins, Robert Hartley, Marianne, Cynthia Clink, Betsy Simmons, Dominique Lewis, Sarah Black, Bethany Wood, Tanya Buffalo, Chelsea Fraser, Tiffany Coonrod, Claire Eastwood, Taylor Robinson, Caitlin Wurtzman, Erin Barry, Jen McCormick, Kimberly Hardy, Nancy Nakagawa. Thank you so much for being our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate you every damn day. We sure do. We also have a birthday this week and our birthday is to Steph Sharpie. Happy birthday, Steph, you gorgeous human being. Happy birthday to you. And our film review this week. Our film review is Vivarium. Vivarium was released in 2019. It has 5.8 out of 10 on IMDb and 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Yes, please. Hoping to find the perfect place to live, a couple travel to a suburban neighbourhood in which all of the houses look identical. But when they try to leave the labyrinth-like development, each road mysteriously takes them back to where they started. So what were your thoughts on this film? I want to say from the start, I like this film. I can 100% see why people wouldn't like it. Yes, it was very predictable, but it super unnerved me all the way through and for days after. It's not particularly jump scary, but it is terribly unnerving. I don't know that it was predictable. I really don't know that it was. So full disclosure, we didn't plan on reviewing this movie at all. I was cooking dinner while Dan was watching it and then he got so into it and I kept dipping in and out and I got so into it that I ended up going back and watching and re-watching it myself to catch up on all the bits that I had missed. And this film like fucked me up, genuinely. Like it really unnerved me massively. And I don't know if we can talk about it without there being spoilers. So if you haven't seen it, go and watch it and then come back and listen to this review. So obviously at the start, during the titles, you get images of a cuckoo, the fast growth of a cuckoo, right? So right at the beginning. So I think obviously the director's telling you that this is an important part of the story. I didn't see how it fitted in until they were given a baby and were told, you've got to raise this and then you'll be able to get out of the housing estate that they seem to be trapped in. Yeah, I think the image, that the the clip of the cuckoo in the beginning was so horrific and i'd forgotten (laughs) how horrific cuckoos are because if you don't know uh cuckoos lay their eggs in other birds nests and then the the cuckoo chick pushes the other birds chicks out of the nest so that the birds only feed the cuckoo and you have this like image of this horrible grotesque giant baby bird being fed by these tiny birds that don't realize it's not theirs and really cuckoos really freak me out (laughs) i know it's nature i know that they've evolved to do that i get it but it really freaks me out and then this this couple this kind of couple in the world she's a teacher he's a gardener or a tree surgeon and they go and see an estate agent and dear god if ever there needed to be an oscar that man (laughs) who played the estate agent needs to get it (laughs) <laughs> he's so he was so scary so creepy <laughs> he was so scary it's the uncanny valley thing again isn't it that's not what it's called is it Unc- it is what it's called yeah. it's being kind of human but something's not quite yeah. right and you do but but the thing is estate agents by their very nature have to be upbeat and really positive about the things that they're showing you so I got it 
I got like why are they using the state agent? But dear God, he was scary. Yeah, <laughs> he was. There's no way to describe him. Like you have to just see his character. He, he just is bizarre. They get trapped in the thing, and then a baby arrives in a box, and they're told, "You raise this baby, you'll be released." Yeah, that's and I, it. And I think that's where the predictability comes in because as soon as the baby becomes a child, you know that it's growing into an estate agent, and I think that's why it's predictable because it takes away that part of it but everything else is just messes with your head i thought the child was the scariest child that we've seen in a film i don't i think ever because it wasn't just that oh he's a creepy haunted kid who says weird things trope he was he was terrifying he was he alarmed me so much like (laughs) i every time he was on screen i was like please don't talk please don't talk please don't talk because i just couldn't i couldn't hack him he was so scary I think, now I don't know this for sure, but I feel like a part of his dialogue came from it being overdubbed because I feel like it was a, an adult doing his voice. Yes, it was. It was an, It was definitely an adult's voice, but they had done it so perfectly that you had this child speaking with an adult's voice and mimicking everything that his now surrogate parents were doing. Oh, Oh, it was awful. Oh, it was. I just hated him so much. So much. I had a moment here again where I was like, oh, we're watching another horror movie with a bad dad when he was just like, oh, and you know, not doing anything with the baby. And I was like, well, if you know you're getting out, just deal with it. But as soon as that baby became a child, I was like, no, kill it. And you know as well, you know this baby isn't human. There's no like, yeah, there's no kind of ambiguity about it. You know, this creature is some sort of other species. You don't know what it is. But it's 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 something other, and that is so. He's ju- I mean, uh, as as far as scary kids go, this kid took the biscuit. I think, mm. you know, like I just couldn't, I just couldn't deal with him. I think this was clever because it's not full of jump scares. I think we're so used to watching horror movies that are full of jump scares. It was nice to watch one that wasn't didn't have any in it. It was just horror because it was incredibly unnerving, and you could picture yourself. Well, not picture yourself, but you can understand the protagonist's issue with being trapped in this place. Yeah, you can. And that's what made it so terrifying, I think. And I thought, just because Matt from Full Movie Podcast messaged me and said, I thought this film was just about a couple being trapped in suburbia. And I was like, it is, but it isn't. Like, I think there is a commentary about, like, suburbia life. And there was a film, and this is, I'm going to be very wanky for a second, but when I was in uni, I had to study a film called Blue Velvet where and the opening scene I don't even remember what the film was about because I probably didn't pay attention but I remember the opening scene which was these beautiful like pastel almost Sweeney Todd not Sweeney Todd what's the other one Edward Scissorhands type um, suburbia and it's this gorgeous shot of everything being perfect and the camera pans underground and it's just teeming with like insects and worms and damp and dark and horrible and that's what this reminded me of because you have this literally perfect suburbia and then this horrific situation that's playing out and it like so i think it was a commentary on suburban life and maybe like i don't know heteronormative societal expectations or whatever but it wasn't just that they like because there was also this fucking species (laughs) that these people were being forced to raise oh i I don't know i like i could talk about this film forever it messed me up so much i feel like we flipped roles here though because i drew no message from that at all (laughs) i was just like this is just weird 
and it really unsettled me and it gave me really like weird dreams for like two nights afterwards or weird nightmares rather for two nights afterwards and I can't really tell you why it just found I have personally found it really unsettling and unlike a lot of movies where I think I just I like them and they're you know it doesn't matter what other people think with this one I think if people don't like this I totally understand why you wouldn't like it but for me I found it really unsettling like it shook me a little bit I thought I think because in the beginning there's a bit where the girl is talking to her colleague and she hasn't bought a house yet and her colleague says oh well don't get left behind and that it grated on me so much on a personal level and then I think from then on was where I drew that parallel of like oh god they're being forced into this suburban life and it doesn't feel like either of them really wanted and that in itself could have been a kind of a horror film right but it but the addition of this and I didn't know what a vivarium was either do you know what a vivarium is <laughs> I thought it was like one of those little mini gardens it's yeah it's like a terrarium it's a but a vivarium is specifically a tank where you build a fake ecosystem in order to keep pets oh, right, so okay. I had to google that afterwards because I was like vivarium must mean something <laughs> Now, it says something about a film when I actually invest in it afterwards. Mm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I feel like I've just been ranting about this film. I'm sorry. That's right. No, it's good. So, what would you give this film? <laughs> five stars. I don't know. For me, I'm going to give it a five. Ooh, okay. I know that's, that's a lot, but I found it really disturbing. I thought the kid was terrifying and not in the traditional way at all. I, fe- I spent days thinking about what would I have done differently if I was in their situation? Or what could they have tried to alleviate the situation? And I thought it was very clever. Like, it, it messed me up. We've definitely flipped roles because I'm going to give it four. And the reason I'm giving it four is because it was set... And it was quite very clearly filmed in Ireland and there were no Irish actors in it, which is which is a you comment. There were Irish actors in it. There was a Irish actor. Two. Was there? Yeah, the kid when he was a kid is an Irish actor. Oh, the he didn't kid have an Irish when accent. he was a okay. grown-up was an Irish actor. All right, four and a half then. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I, I would highly recommend checking it out if you haven't seen it. Which brings us to our story this week. I'm guessing it's not related to the film. Um, no, (laughs) it's not. But it's a story I've been meaning to do for quite some time. Uh Uh-oh. We're going to Nova Scotia today. Ooh. I know. Bet you weren't expecting me to say that. No, I'm quite excited. My research today comes from a really good book that I would highly recommend that you read called Fire Spook. The Mysterious Nova Scotia Haunting by a lady called Monica Graham. Really good book and actually really balanced. Are you ready? No. Nova Scotia is a province in eastern Canada that has a fascinating and rich cultural tradition. It is home to almost one million people, wild kitchen Kayleys and incredible seafood. But it is also home to a strange little tale that gripped the world in the 1920s. The story has been told and retold countless times since 1922, so it is likely that some details have been forgotten, some obscured and some exaggerated. But the fact remains that in 1922, the MacDonald family were driven from their home in the depths of winter, and no one could quite understand exactly what happened. Alexander MacDonald, a child of Scottish immigrants, was born in 1851. He married Janet Cameron in 1873, and in 1887 they had a daughter named Mary. Alex built a farmhouse on the MacDonald family farm. Like the majority of the neighbours, the farmhouse had no electricity, no telephone or running water, but it was a well-built and sophisticated building that was spacious, 
well-decorated and comfortable. In the late 1880s, Janet's mother developed dementia and her behaviour deteriorated rapidly. She would roam around her home at night screaming for her dead husband and tearing the house apart. She was moved to her son's, where it was quickly established that they just couldn't care for her, so she was moved to the poorhouse as a last resort. Janet was horrified. The poorhouse at that time was notorious, and inhabitants barely received even basic care. She decided that her mother would be moved in with her, and no one could talk her out of it. When her mother moved in, Janet quickly realised that she had made a mistake. Her mother wailed all night long, was violent, and regularly destroyed items of furniture. Janet began locking her in her room, but her mother would break the latch and escape. Janet begged for help, but the poorhouse administrators refused to take her back, and there was no social care system at the time that could help her. Eventually, Janet resorted to nailing her mother's bedroom door shut, to which her mother would respond by destroying the room again and again. It was a devastating and frustrating situation for all involved, and it came to an abrupt end on the 27th of April 1900. The house was full of visitors, and Janet's mother was having a particularly bad episode, and try as she might, Janet could not calm her down. Eventually, at her wit's end, Janet screamed at her mother, I hope the devil in hell comes and takes you before the morning. With that, a big black dog appeared in the kitchen and strolled through the house, watched by all. It made its way into Janet's mother's bedroom and disappeared. No one in the house had seen the dog before. No one knew where it came from, and no one could say where it went. The next morning, Janet's mother was dead, and the dog became the harbinger of all of the misery that would soon follow. There is no evidence that Janet did anything untoward to her mother, aside from poor choices regarding her care. But quiet rumours began to swirl in the small community. Some believed that Janet had smothered her mother-in-law, and some believed that Janet had caused her death by summoning a hellhound. Prior to the events of that night, the MacDonald family were well respected in their small community, but the events and the rumours that followed made Janet bitter and withdrawn, and she lashed out at those around her. Another event seemed to cement the troubles of the family. Alexander's brother Andrew arrived at the house and had just returned from the US full of money, liquor and stories, and whatever happened he royally upset Janet and she threw him out of the house. Andrew was furious, and as he made his way out into the blowing gale, he turned to Janet and said, Tate akur amok, er an sitig er ihafada, nas massa non ihasho. Which means, you'll be driven out onto the dung heap on a far worse night than this. Life moved on, and eventually Janet and Alexander took in a girl named Mary Ellen. Their own daughter Mary had grown up and left the home, and Mary Ellen was the daughter of a friend of Janet's. Mary Ellen's father had died in a tragic mining accident, and her mother was struggling to raise the children alone, so Mary Ellen moved to the MacDonald homestead. The farm was a world away from the mining town that Mary Ellen had come from. She had moved from a place where it was constantly bustling, but she was constantly hungry. 
and now she had animals to play with, a quiet home and a full belly, and by all accounts she was happy. But people began to notice that odd things were happening on the Macdonald farm, and it's hard to decipher whether these reports began happening before or after Mary Ellen arrived on the scene. Visitors to the farm reported seeing balls of fire floating on the farm. Balls of flame that were the size of beach balls and had no obvious source. The house was plagued by strange noises, and when the noises occurred, the occupants of the house would be unable to open the doors to leave, but when the noises stopped, the doors would open. The house would be filled with banging and roaring noises, and items would fall from cabinets. And this was not just reported by the family, it was witnessed by external visitors. Items began to disappear from the house. Utensils would be gone, the family would get up in the morning and all the rugs in the house would have disappeared. At one point, the rugs from the house were found draped at the top of the tallest trees on the property. Saddles disappeared from locked rooms. Alexander bought a brand new harness and locked it away. And when he went to retrieve it, the door was still locked but the harness was gone. Alex searched everywhere, asked neighbours and couldn't find it. But years later, Alex and his neighbour heard a cowbell dinging from deep in the forest and tracked it to where no cow could be. But what they did find was a buckle. And as he dug, Alex realised it was his missing harness. And it became a regular occurrence for items to disappear and show up in odd and inconceivable places. Neighbours began to return items as they found them buried in fields or hooked into trees. And Alex wondered if somehow Mary Ellen was responsible Perhaps she was playing with the items and not realising the impact that these items were having. But his opinion soon changed, when his cows began to escape, and Mary Ellen was in the same room as him. No matter how Alex would restrain the cows at night time, they would always and inexplicably be loose when he returned. The first few times he believed that it was his own carelessness, but when he had gotten to the point of chaining the cows up and minutes later they would be free. He knew he wasn't making mistakes. Tales of the Houdini cattle were spreading in the community. Celtic people have a rich oral history of storytelling and a strong belief in the supernatural, and the people assumed that a mischievous spirit was to blame for the odd happenings on the farm. One night some visitors had had supper on the MacDonald farm and were making their way home on a horse and trap, They saw a riderless horse coming towards them and wondered where it had come from and who it belonged to. They watched as the horse rounded their horse and trap and wandered past them. The visitors figured that the horse must belong to the McDonald's and turned to ensure that it entered the farm. When they turned, the horse was gone and in its place was a man they did not recognise wandering towards the McDonald farm. They couldn't understand it There was nowhere for the horse to disappear to, and nowhere for the man to appear from. And more bizarre, they realised that neither the man nor the horse had left any footprints. The cows stopped escaping as suddenly as they started, and the sudden halt coincided with a visit from a priest. A priest who fled the farm when a horse's hoof print appeared in front of him in a window. It was around this time that neighbours believed they saw flames on the farmhouse roof that were not there when they ran to raise the alarm. Two separate neighbours saw an eerie blue light illuminating the barn 
and unfortunately for the McDonald's, this was only the beginning. In modern times, fire is devastating. But in the 1920s on Nova Scotia, it was even more devastating. If your house was engulfed in flames, there was no fire brigade to come, sirens roaring and save the day. It was generally a community effort, with buckets of water and a lot of hope. So when, on the morning of Saturday the 7th of January 1922, Alex discovered a scorch mark on the roof of his living room, he was concerned. He assumed that the flue pipe was blocked, so he disassembled it, cleaned it and reassembled it. They let the fire go out that afternoon and he checked the embers that night to ensure they were cold when he went to bed. In the middle of the night, Alex was awoken by Janet's frantic screams of fire and he stumbled to the living room to see flames bursting from the stove and licking the ceiling. He put the fire out and that night Alex would put out four more fires that erupted in the loft. Believing that the fire had smouldered in the floor of the loft, Alex lifted and doused all of the floorboards. That night, the rocking chair caught fire and in the time Alex had shoved it out the door and into a snowbank, the couch was up in flames. The next night, Mary Ellen and Janet fled to a neighbour's to seek help for the fires that were exploding all over their house. Blinds on the windows ignited, the curtains, the wallpaper, calendars on the walls, pictures and anything that was flammable. The McDonald's and their neighbours battled the fires throughout the night and eventually doused the walls with water to try and prevent the flames. But they still burned. The neighbours later reported that when a fire would start, a light would fill the house like a blinding flash, and that the flames lacked heat or sound. But something even more curious would arouse suspicion among the two families. Wedged in various places or stuck behind pieces of wallpaper were little cotton balls, or little cotton balls stuffed in little cardboard matchboxes. The fabric was unfamiliar to everyone in the house. The fires continued, and it was even reported that Alex and Mary Ellen watched as a cloth that was wet through and sitting in a pool of water burst into sudden and inconceivable flames. And eventually it was agreed that the McDonald's would stay with their neighbours that night. The men of both families returned to the house the next morning and they all witnessed a man's forearm reach out of one of the upstairs windows and wave a white piece of cloth at them, almost as if surrendering. The men investigated the house and found nothing, only the charred and sodden remnants of the night before. The story of the strange goings-on at the MacDonald farm spread like wildfire and a local newspaper got hold of the story and the gossip grew. A team of investigators visited the house and confirmed that an assortment of furniture was piled up outside, complete with scorch marks. They confirmed that the house was damp and in places sodden where the family had frantically tried to put out and prevent further fires. They noted scorch marks where the fires had been. They were not connected to each other. They were not connected to any heat source. There was no sign of any type of lighter fluid or accelerant in the house and there was no evidence of the mysterious cotton material that was allegedly appearing with the flames. And the newspaper printed that there was no conceivable explanation for what had happened but also offered 5 10 and $15 rewards to anyone who could solve the mystery. And the theories came flooding in. It was a vampire returned to claim its land. It was fairies. It was demons. 
It was an elaborate trick designed to drive the McDonald's off their land. It was because of a chemical reaction. And these were just some of the theories that were presented to the newspaper. And one reader questioned that if a ghost had indeed started the fire, then why in the hell had it needed cotton to do it? The case became more strained because the McDonald's were facing financial ruin. The insurance company refused to pay out because they feared that all and sundry would then be setting fire to their houses and claiming large sums of money and blaming ghosts. Detective Peachy Carroll was drafted in. And if anyone was going to solve the mystery, it was him. Peachy Carroll was joined by newspaper reporter Harold Whidden, and he made his way to the MacDonald home determined not to leave until they solved the mystery. Carroll first interviewed the witnesses, all of whom told the same story, and all of whom he deemed credible. Then Carroll, Whidden and Alex MacDonald returned to the farmhouse, and were subsequently trapped there by a vicious snowstorm. The first few nights passed without incident. They had lit the stove to dry out the damp house and created beds on the living room floor using hay and animal skins. The only thing they had to contend with was the extreme cold and the icy wind that seeped into the house through every crack and crevice. During this time, Carl continued to interview MacDonald and to take note of all the burn marks throughout the house. A few nights after their arrival, Widden awoke to Carol sitting bolt upright and staring at the ceiling. He noticed that Widden had awoken and pressed his finger to his lips to signal for him to stay quiet. They both lay and listened as heavy, determined footsteps made their way across the floor above their heads and down the stairs to the pantry. Carol timed this phenomenon for six minutes and then the footsteps stopped and Widden felt an unmistakable hard slap on his upper arm. Carl was stumped. He couldn't understand what had happened at the farm, and the countryside was gripped with fear that there was an arsonist on the loose, or worse, some sort of vengeful spirit. There was one aspect of the case that Carol believed was the linchpin, and that was the cows repeatedly being freed. He had inspected the barn, and seeing the increasingly elaborate ways in which Alex MacDonald had tried to contain his cattle, and there was no conceivable way that the cows could have been released without some sort of intervention, but he believed there was no way they could have been released by human intervention at the speed at which they were escaping. Carol and Widden offered a $200 reward for anyone who could suggest how the cattle had been released without supernatural intervention and he also released an official statement, which read, P.O. Carroll's Summary of the Mysterious Case The happenings at the house and barn of Alexander MacDonald in Caledonia Mills. After what I consider a thorough investigation, which included a careful examination of Alexander MacDonald, his wife and adopted daughter Mary Ellen MacDonald, the MacGillivray brothers Dan and Leo, Duncan MacDonald and Mike MacGillivray, After examining the house and barn carefully and seeing with my own eyes the scars of the fire, some of them charred, others scorched, and others more like smooches caused by the fire. And after spending two days and two nights in the house, I firmly believe that neither the fires nor the other strange happenings were the work of human hands. Signed, P. O. Carroll. There are two ways that we can look at this statement. 
Carol and Widden offered $200 to anyone who could prove that the events were caused by human hands. Either they genuinely believed that the events were caused by the supernatural and were so sure of this that they were willing to offer large sums of money because they knew that no one could disprove it. Or Carol and Widden knew what had happened and were confident that no one would figure it out. When Carol arrived at the MacDonald farm, he told Widden that he had a hunch about what had happened and that there was one individual responsible. But he wouldn't say who, and he never said whether this hunch had been confirmed. Or maybe he was trying to protect the family against the continued accusations of a hoax. The newspaper reports got more and more sensational. They talked of horses' manes and tails being elaborately braided by unseen hands, which wasn't true and they even printed that Carol had literally handcuffed the devil who had disappeared leaving the handcuffs molten hot. Also not true. The sensationalism caused Dr. Walter Prince, who was an expert in all things paranormal, to come and visit, and his findings were slightly different. Prince had noticed that none of the fires were lit above five feet in height, and that any of the fires that were in the ceiling or in the rafters had been lit by a piece of cotton wool. He believed that Mary Ellen was the cause of the fires, and that when she was too short to reach higher, she would light a piece of cotton and flick it into the rafters. He also found lighter and separation fluid hidden in the rafters, which would allow items to be set alight even when wet. Prince asserted that Mary Ellen had the mental age of a six-year-old and seemed to have some sort of intellectual disability. Peachy Carroll wrote a scathing rebuttal of this arguing that in no way was Mary Ellen intellectually disabled and went to his grave believing Mary Ellen's innocence. Peachy was so convinced that Mary Ellen was being wrongly represented that he and his wife took her in and organised for her to do a tour speaking about her experiences. But Prince's scathing report had swayed people and the tour was eventually cancelled due to lack of interest. Mary Ellen went on to have a sad and colourful life. A few years after leaving home to make it in the big bad world, Mary Ellen was admitted into a lunatic asylum for attempting to burn a barn down. But it was something that she vehemently denied. It was suggested that her reputation influenced how people viewed her and any arson attempt was immediately pinned on her. After her release, Mary Ellen was incarcerated for sex work but eventually settled down, changed her name, got married and had kids. She died in 1987. So that's it. The story is all wrapped up in a nice neat bow. It was all perpetrated by Mary Ellen. But that's not where our story ends. How did the items from the farm end up buried or at the top of the tallest trees on the farm? Why did people report seeing fireballs on the farm long before the fires were started in the house? What about the mysterious horse that somehow became a man? What about the noises, the banging, the footsteps, the release of the cattle? Which, if you remember, often happened when Mary Ellen was in the kitchen with Janet. And there was another theory that was widely believed by the locals and only spoken about in hushed whispers. The house was cursed. It was well known that Janet had cursed her mother and her mother had died. And it was also well known that Andrew MacDonald had thrown out a curse over his shoulder as he was turfed out into the cold dark night. Te de chura mach, er on sitig, er ia fada nas massa na ni ha 
The McDonald's never moved back to the farmhouse after they were driven out of the house that night. But the strangeness didn't stop. In the 1960s, author N. Carol McIntyre visited the farmhouse to research the mysterious story. The first thing he noticed was a white horse that he saw on the land that was never identified. He was also shown around by a local posing as a tour guide who advised him not to remove anything from the remains of the farmhouse as it was cursed. Undeterred, McIntyre returned to the farmhouse alone and pocketed a little egg cup to bring home and pop on his mantelpiece as a souvenir. His house burnt to the ground. Later he took a plane to visit Mary Ellen to interview her. The engine in the plane died and he was forced to make an emergency landing. In 2011, McIntyre publicly advocated for warning people away from the farmhouse as he firmly believed it was cursed. The next family that moved into the farmhouse after the McDonald's reported that their kitchen cabinets would regularly burst into flames. They had frequent knocking from inside the house and on the door to the farmhouse. They became accustomed to knocks on the door to which there would be no one there. Chairs would move around the living room of their own accord. The family, locals and delivery men all reported seeing a mysterious white horse and big black dogs, one of which was seen running along the narrow top rail of a fence. It was a regular occurrence for cars to mysteriously break down on the farmland and in the 1970s, a seminary student brought a brick from the farm back to New York to show his friends. He stored it in his aunt's shed, and the shed burned to the ground that night. Also in the 1970s, a group of students parked their Ford Mercury on the farm while they went and explored. They returned to their car completely burnt out. The only item that remained untouched were the letters M-E of the Mercury sign. There were many people who were responsible for pranks on the farm, especially during initiation rituals for college students. But there are events that are just inexplicable. So what really happened on this farm? There are those who believe that the whole story was because of Mary Ellen's need for attention and fire starting. But there are also those who believe that something strange really did happen on this farm and that the land to this day is still cursed. Well, E-I-E-I-O. That's all I can say. I've been waiting to that since you told me it was on McDonald's Farm. Um, I knew before <laughs> I did this story that it was McDonald's Farm and it was somewhere in Canada, right? So I was looking up like Haunted McDonald's, Canada. Fuck me, the amount of the amount of bizarre results <laughs> that I got. But I eventually got there. Mm. I cannot believe that it's another story with spirits starting fires. I thought you might enjoy that. I do have some theories for you, but we'll come to those in a second. So just so you know. I don't really want any more proof that ghosts can start fires. And I feel like you've given me some more. But was it ghosts? At least we haven't blamed this on owls. <laughs> it's a step up from last week, right? <laughs> I want to shout out to all the people who messaged and said, how do those look like fucking owls <laughs> about the pictures of the, the goblins in Kentucky? And yes, I agree. I, I just... words just do not there's just so much going on like i want to know about the horse i want to know about the black dogs i want to know about all the balls of fire the blue stuff the curses i don't even know where to start with this do you want should we go through theories i think it's probably way to do it yeah so theory number one which is the most obvious theory 
it was Mary Ellen. So Mary Ellen was later incarcerated. Well, she was, I mean, she was incarcerated to an asylum for allegedly trying to start a barn fire. But Mary Ellen was also incredibly famous at the time. Everyone knew who she was and everyone knew her as the girl that was, you know, starting fires on the farm because that was what Prince printed about her. However, there are problems with what Prince printed about her. Number one, she wasn't five foot. She was about an inch shorter than Alex and Janet. So really, it could have been any of the three of them, not just her. Secondly, she wasn't developmentally disabled. Can I just interrupt to that point? I would say that it takes a level of intellect beyond a six-year-old to set fires in the roof using cotton wool. Right. (laughs) This was was the argument because... What Prince said was that there was quite a complex chemical reaction was happening with like an accelerant and something else. And it was on the cotton and that's why it could be lit when it was wet. And people argued, well, if she was developmentally delayed, then would she be able to hatch this really elaborate plan? She's the intellect of a six year old and never falter. Like anybody who interviewed her always said, you know, that she was credible and so was the rest of the family. That's my problem with that part of it more than anything else is it could easily be her, but the part of it, one part of that story doesn't measure up because I just don't feel like someone with the intellect of a six-year-old would be able to put together such a complex plan and not get caught or accidentally burn the entire house down. Yes. Or themselves. Yes. Like it'd be a different story if it was saying like, oh, Mary Ellen was knocking about with bandages on her arms. <laughs> And reeked of lighter fluid all the time. And loved matches. Loved them. Collected them. And it, I think it's also really important that... So when Prince arrived, it was about two months after Peachy Carroll and Widden had done their extensive investigation where they wanted to prove that there was a human being behind this. And it was two months after everything that happened that Prince found the fluid that he believed was lighting the fire. So there is there is a suggestion that perhaps Prince was trying to find ways to prove his own narrative just as, as also an aside. i'd imagine nobody had claimed that 200 dollars that they put on the line <laughs> which is definitely a reason to come up with a human explanation for it is it not i had forgotten about the 200 dollars actually <laughs> completely forgotten so yeah I'd, I'd like i wouldn't rule it out i just think there's problems with his story and i also agree with you that you can't taking into consideration her later conviction for arson because there is a strong possibility that she was framed for that because people knew who she was yeah and, and i you know maybe she did do it I, i'm like i the whole way through the story i do lean towards her but i think it's because i know that she was convicted of arson afterwards mm. and people have kind of looked at this case because if it is her she is a female pyromaniac which is actually apparently quite unusual Mm. psychologically which I didn't I didn't know and according to the book that I read she doesn't actually fit any of the other characteristics for pyromania I, I mean I don't know that much about pyromania and the pathology behind it but that's just something that I think that's worth keeping in mind so the sort of spirited part of me obviously is not going with Mary Ellen because it has to be something paranormal because it's no fun otherwise <laughs> but the head part of me is also saying it's not Mary Ellen because I don't want to give that guy that came two months later the satisfaction and it, and, and said and printed some pre- he printed that she was intellectually disabled and 
that she had been possessed and that was what caused her to, to start the fires. And in a Celtic community at that time, accusing somebody of being possessed is a pretty dangerous thing to do. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm not saying... like She wouldn't have been like hung as a witch or anything because we'd moved past that time. But really, you're talking about somebody being ex... ex what's the word excommunicated excommunicated I was going to say exercise then I was like that's not the word I mean it also gives me that impression of and obviously I'm not saying it was the guy that wrote the article that set the fires but it also gives me an impression of that thing that toddlers do where they don't want to get in trouble for something they've done so they blame someone else but they give loads of reasons why the other person shouldn't be told off for doing it (laughs) so he's gone it's Mary Ellen but she's intellectually disabled and was possessed so it's blaming her but also taking the blame given her an excuse which i think if you're going to put it on someone just put it on them <laughs> yeah i think if he had i mean maybe it was mary ellen like she apparently loved the attention of like everybody coming around to like visit the farm and see apparently she loved it and who's to say maybe it was her my leaning is that it is likely that she had something to do with it but i don't know if it's fair to say she did everything maybe she had an accomplice Maybe she did. Theory number two. Did Andrew curse the land? Did Janet curse her mother? These stories only emerged after the fire. So it's impossible to know if they're true or just local gossip. But Celtic people put a lot of weight into curses at the time and the power of curses. And if you, you know, if you say something by the devil, like that is a pretty big statement to make. Did she curse the land? Did he curse the land? You know, you know how I feel about if you ask the devil to do something. <laughs> I feel like you're getting those bad spirits about riled up for no reason. So, possibly. I don't... It's hard to... Again, because it's after the fact and it's gossip. You don't know, do you? I just feel like there's there's a lot going on here to be contributed or attributed rather to one girl. Yeah, and I think finding the rugs on top of the trees and stuff, like there is no physical way that she could have safely done that. No. You know what I mean? It's it, you know there are there are elements of it like and releasing the cattle is another one that I think. Hang on a second. They know this wasn't her, mm. and he was literally chaining his cattle up because he couldn't keep them in, and he'd leave the barn, go back in and check, and they'd be released again. Alex McDonald said that it, in the space of three minutes, his cattle would be free again, and there's no way a child with the alleged intellect of a six-year-old would be doing that without getting caught. I feel like most people don't want to blame things on the paranormal. They'll look for a normal excuse. So if your daughter is not in sight and the cows get unchained, she's the one that's getting the blame for that straight away. Do you not think? Like, if you're looking for an explanation for something and you don't actually, you can't actually account for the whereabouts of someone when that happens, that's where you're laying your blame. When easily she could be the other side of the farm doing something completely different. Yeah, but also there was there was loads of moments where they're not blaming her for it. Like... Andrew would just say, like, he wouldn't bring it up if it was his daughter, if he thought it was his daughter. There was no reason for him to bring up as evidence for something. No, and I would find it mad that there were, I think in all, the night when the neighbours were around and they fought the fires together, I think there were like six people in the house, maybe seven people in the house. I find it, I mean, I'm impressed if she managed to do that without getting caught. Yeah. Genuinely impressed. Like... How, I don't know how many fires they claimed. I mean, the newspapers were like, there were 50 fires that night. There weren't. It was, you know, it was maybe somewhere I read eight, somewhere I read 10. It depends on what you read. 
but more conservative estimate would be like 10 fires. She managed to start 10 fires in a house with six people in it, sometimes with all six people in the same room and not get caught. Yeah. That's impressive. Imagine if they were all just totally oblivious though and like they're walking past her out in the field like throw, trying to throw a rug up to the top of the tree and they're just not paying any attention. People just aren't speaking to each other in the community so they're not really making the connections. <laughs> Number three. It was Janet. There are those that believe that Janet killed her mother and that the resulting issues were her mother's vengeful spirit. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going with that. Mm. There was no indication that she was causing anything in turn, like Janet herself physically at the time. Okay. I just wondered whether it was like a guilt thing. So like she killed her mother and actually starting fires and looking for was her punishing herself. Oh, that's very, I mean, that's very non-paranormal of you. I'm here yeah, that's for That's where it. I thought you were going with it. So. No, that's not <laughs> where I was going. There was, an, there was a man in the community who slept in abandoned farmhouses in the countryside um, and he claimed to have come face to face with Janet's herself, her vengeful spirit, that she had never left the MacDonald farm after she had died. Yeah, I, d- I do like that as an explanation. Don't feel it's very factual, <laughs> but I do like it in terms of paranormal. Like the idea that it, that actually she, her mother wasn't just ill, but she was actually wronged, and it was her revenge. I mean, it's very movie like, isn't it? It is very movie like. But listen, we're here doing a paranormal podcast. We gotta we gotta cover all the bases, babe. I feel like something spiritual is going on here. I didn't really take Janet's mother. I feel like I didn't really take her into account because I just felt like she was a very sick lady. She passed away. And I didn't really think that there was any wrongdoing in it. I think mental illness is quite hard to hard to deal with for if you, you live with someone that has it. And I think sometimes you say things that you don't mean. And her cursing her mum out doesn't necessarily mean she meant it. No, and I think that in the circumstances... I mean, the, the description of it sounds pretty awful. Like the son took her in. He couldn't handle her. Janet just didn't want her in the poorhouse. Insisted on bringing her home and bit off way more than she could chew and just didn't have the means to care for the mother in the way that she needed to be cared for that was it like I mean you can't predict what's going to happen when you're bringing somebody home who's that unwell no I didn't really I don't nah I don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't like that one it could be but I'm not going with that be careful what you wish for because you just said you wanted a more factual one. Oh yeah so number four it was phosphorus Many newspaper readers suggested that the fires were started by phosphine pesticide, so it was used as a rat poison. It was used by Alex on the farm to keep pests down. Alex was unable to read, so it's possible that he used larger quantities than necessary. Phosphine contains phosphorus, which is highly flammable and gets everywhere, so it spreads really easily. So there are people who believe that Alex literally had phosphorus on his clothes, brought it into the house, it was trekking it all over the house, and that when these little fires were started, it was because phosphorus was being lit by like the tiniest of sparks from the stove. Also, both Widden, Widden had um, fought in World War One and had suffered from gas exposure. So both Widden and Janet were really ill while they were on the farm and both got better when they left the farm really ill with like chesty coughs that sounds perfectly factual and plausible and also the little 
known scientific fact that if you have phosphorus on your clothes, your cows will be released. Yeah, well, everybody knows that. Yeah. So I feel like we potentially are dealing with two different things here then. Maybe there's stuff going on outside the farm, which is one thing. and then Like on the land. On the land. And then there's stuff going on inside the building, which is actually down to phosphorus, which is possible, I Or guess. human intervention. You know, like, I'm still not ruling out the fact that Mary Ellen could have done this. Yeah, and she, I mean, she'd be helped along, wouldn't she, if, if all of her family members were covered in phosphorus. Everything in the house was just <laughs> luminescent with phosphorus. Could this just be a series of really badly timed accidents um, on Mary Ellen's behalf? Maybe she'd had no intention of actually starting fires, but it was just, you know, constantly flicking metal together or something like that, just setting little sparks. My issue is that it doesn't explain the cotton in the matchboxes. No, the cotton makes me think that it was very definitely Mary Ellen at least starting the fires. Yeah. Because they found, like, so I probably didn't explain it very well, but they found, like, matchboxes packed with cotton, like, in behind the wallpaper. So, you know, maybe... Maybe she was starting the fires, but it doesn't explain the rest of it. No. So I think we're actually at the point where we treat the fires and the rest of it as two separate things. Number five. The fire and the other phenomena are separate events. (laughs) And the other events were caused by a local man named Duncan MacDonald. Duncan MacDonald left the area when Peachy Carroll arrived to investigate. And some believe that Peachy Carroll suspected Duncan MacDonald and suspected that he was involved in the events and had some stern words with him and gave him the opportunity to leave if he didn't do it again. There's no other evidence that Duncan was involved. But apparently that was Peachy Carroll's way of operating. He would, in in situations like this, where it was suspected that there might be some local involvement, he would figure out who it was, say to them, I know it's you, but I'm giving you the chance to just fuck off and stop doing what you're doing and then the events would stop. I feel like it might be the case. I'm not going to pin it on Duncan because I don't know enough about him. His name's not Duncan, is it? Yeah, it is. I'm not going to pin it on him. Um, But have it, you know, if Mountain Men has taught me anything, it's that land is often disputed and people that dispute land often do nefarious things to try and move others on so would it be overly surprising if it was someone that was after the mcdonald's farm no do i want to believe that that's it no so no (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just it's an interesting story isn't it and i wonder how much local superstition plays into it and i don't want to do the whole they were country people so they were clearly stupid they weren't stupid people you know what I mean? And that's and that's a problem with this story is that there was a kind of a, a raised eyebrows or they're kind of half feral people living in the countryside in Nova Scotia and they believe in all sorts of witchcraft and, and wizardry. Not necessarily true. And in fact, the local people had pretty, you know, frank conversations with newspapers, etc. about their theories behind it. And some of them was like, it was Janet, it was Mary Ellen, it was, you know, whatever. So they weren't just automatically going yep you're all fucked it's demons and that's it we're not helping you so i don't really uh, yeah it's just it's an it's a wild little story so i've got a couple of problems about this that haven't been covered by your theories Ooh, go for it i don't see what peachy carroll and his buddy have to gain 
from it being unsolved what is the advantage of them going to solve something and coming away from it saying they've got no explanation for it oh you mean that if they had an explanation they would have given it I agree and I think Peachy Carroll would have loved it he seems like the type of character who believed that there was no case that he couldn't solve he was that man and when he arrived in the area people were like whoa it's Peachy Carroll amazing name like what a nickname but I agree. So I, I don't I don't think his ego would have allowed him to leave it unsolved if he genuinely knew what was happening. And there are things that him and his mate experienced that can't be contributed to Mary Ellen or Duncan. So the footsteps in the house and his mate getting slapped. If Mary Ellen, Ellen walked into the room, slapped them and got away with it. I mean, I think, place for yeah, her. she, you know, she deserves all the awards. However, there is a nagging doubt also that counters my own argument okay in that his immediate response to someone blaming mary ellen was to take her in and take her on a tour i know i don't like that bit either and part of me says that if you are so well renowned for resolving cases you need a case at some point that you can't solve to make your money in retirement. <laughs> Do you think it was the last case that he ever that he ever did? The other and, thing. And he wrote a memoir. Mm. Well, he wrote a memoir about his life. Like, mm. not necessarily about this particular case, but... And I feel like all good storybook detectives have that one case that they can't solve. And there's one other thing that okay. I have to bring to your attention. You know what else is five foot, don't you? Goblins. <laughs> That's a known fact. <laughs> I don't. I don't, again totally caught me off guard. Didn't know what you were going to say. You went with goblins. Okay, here. For so it. does that explain the blue lights and the fireballs in the sky? Are we talking aliens? There were people that said um, that the blue lights were caused by phosphorus, like luminescent phosphorus, because it does do that, and that the the banging and the knocking and the roaring sounds were caused by earthquakes. But I think that like these people again they weren't stupid yeah and like they lived in the area like, it's a very localised earthquake if it's just happening in that yeah. person's house yeah and who is the horse horseman <laughs> interesting one right yeah and I and there there were so many events after this so there was the in the book that I read she even referenced an event from like 2012 where a truck driver his truck like inexplicably broke down on the land and he has refused to ever go back to that land again whatever happened I don't know what happened but that was that was also included in the book and the the place is burning down after taking trinkets away from the farm I don't know yeah it feels like there's there is something else going on here aliens like cows as well don't they aliens it's a well known fact (laughs) love a cow well it's the whole cattle mutilation thing isn't it I know we're not getting cattle mutilation here but you're getting maybe it's like the vegan equivalent of aliens yeah where they're like we've got to stop cat mutilations let them free yeah maybe that's what it is we've solved it i don't actually think this is aliens i'm just just throwing out wild theories in your chain a little bit but i feel like there is something about this land who knows i'd also like to apologize for anybody who speaks scots gaelic because scots gaelic and irish gaelic are very different things uh and i kind of went with the pronunciation of the words 
that were closest to Irish Gaelic. So I'm sorry if I got it wrong. I apologise. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you have your own theory about what happened, you can let us know. You can find everything you need to know about us on reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can send your own spooky story to Podcast at gmail.com. You can support us on Patreon, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content. That's patreon.com forward slash stories. And on that note... We shall see you next week. Bye.